Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name, of course, is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here, we try to make keeping up with the literature easy. It's like having the latest research spoon-fed to you through your earbuds. Now, let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we're going to be covering this week. First off, we had a head-to-head -head battle of these syncope risk scores, and guess what? Canada wins again. Next, don't forget to scan those bleeding bellies. After that, an update on community-acquired ammonia for ASAP. Then, riding out torus fractures. And finally, magnesium for your migraines. This is the audio version of the past week's summaries, which this week were brought to you by the insightful Sam Parnell and Clay Smith. And now, without further ado, I bring you the first article, which was titled Multivariable Risk Scores for Predicting Short-Term Outcomes for Emergency Department Patients with Unexplained Syncope, a Systematic Review, out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. Does the thought of syncope make you faint? If it does, don't worry. If you do happen to faint, then there are many, many risk scores that can be used to help evaluate you. The San Francisco syncope risk rule is one of them. It's externally validated, which of course is a plus, but the miss rate is higher than you might like, with a pooled sensitivity of just 86%. Another contender from the Great White North, that's right, that's Canada, is the Canadian syncope risk score, which is a promising up-and-comer. So there's a lot of these to choose from, not just the two that I've mentioned, but there can only be one. Now, this was a systematic review of 17 studies with 24,000 patients total to evaluate nine different syncope risk rules. They pooled the studies and came up with positive and negative likelihood ratios for each score. Now, first we'll go over what a good and bad likelihood ratio looks like, just in case you need a reminder. Now, my favorite way to remember if positive likelihood ratios are meaningful is this little mnemonic. More than six beats the skeptics. Less than four, just ignore. And more than 10? Well, that's gonna be a very powerful positive discriminator. The same ratios actually apply for negative likelihood ratios. So that is less than 0.25, i.e. one over four, is meaningful. And less than 0.1 is powerful. A likelihood ratio of 1 is going to be, of course, perfectly useless, though. From this study, for all the syncope rules that had been externally validated, all of them except the Canadian syncope risk score was really lacking in performance. The positive likelihood ratios for all of these were between 1 and 2.5, which, as we just discussed, is less than 4 and therefore not really something to write home about. The negative likelihood ratios did actually quite a bit better, but nothing really did better than the Canadian syncope risk score, for which any score of 4 or more would actually give you a positive likelihood ratio of up to 11, and any score less than 1 gave you a negative likelihood ratio of 0.1. These are meaningful changes. Anyways, to bring it all together in a spoonful, among nine syncope risk rules, the Canadian syncope risk score reigns supreme as a predictor of which patients should be admitted and which patients are safe to discharge. Following that, we have the second article, which was titled The Utilization of CTA in Management of Gastrointestinal Bleeding in a Tertiary Care Center Emergency Department. Are we using it enough? Out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. 
We have got diagnostic tools aplenty for most of the pathologies that we can come across, or at least that is certainly true about GI bleeding. Now let's see, what can we order to get to the source of GI bleeding? We can get an endoscopy, of course. We can get a capsule endoscopy if you've got the time for that. You can get a nuclear scintigraphy. You can get a traditional angiography. You can get a CT enterography, or you can get a CT angiography. Now, perhaps one that gets neglected from time to time is that CTA, which I'll remind you is not the same thing as getting a CT with contrast. So is that the right thing, or should we actually be doing that, or should we be using more CTAs? This was a retrospective review of 1,500 patients from a single center with GI bleeding, and CTA was used in only 0.7% of these cases, if you'd believe it and that's compared to 76% of them getting an endoscopy. Now, a CTA is nice because not only can it find the site of your active bleeding, but can also give you an idea of the underlying structures for planning a targeted endoscopy or embolizations. If you're thinking that it's not going to catch your small bleeds, then you might actually be wrong. I myself was surprised to learn that it can detect bleed rates as low as 0.3 milliliters per minute. That's like just a trickle. For both acute and lower GI bleeds, the sensitivity and specificity sit around 90, which is supported by some meta-analysis data. And it's not just this study alone that's recommending you get a CTA. A CTA for lower GI bleeds is actually strongly recommended by the British Society of Gastroenterology, though they admit this is based on low-quality evidence. Now, while this article might be advocating for you to use more CTAs overall for GI bleeds, probably best for you to do it in patients where you're really unsure where this bleed might be coming from. If you've got a cirrhotic patient, for instance, then you might opt to just get the endoscopy right off the bat because it's most likely to be your definitive treatment anyways. Now, in a spoonful, CTA is likely underutilized for identifying the source of GI bleeding, especially in lower GI bleeds. Then we have the third article, which was titled Clinical Policy, Critical Issues in the Management of Adult Patients Presenting to the Emergency Department with Community-Acquired Pneumonia, out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Just what it sounds like, this is a new ASEP clinical policy statement on the care of adult community-acquired pneumonia patients in the emergency department. Feels weird to consider anything other than COVID, honestly, which, of course, let's be honest, you're going to rule out before thinking about anything that I'm about to say from this policy statement. But this answers three important questions that have been nagging around since the last update in 2009. First question, in the adult emergency department, what clinical decision aids can be used to help determine patient disposition? Here we have a level B recommendation for the use of the pneumonia severity index, or you can use the CURB-65 score, but the pneumonia severity index was favored. Both can be found on MDCalc, of course, and while CURB-65 isn't the favorite, it is easier to do and doesn't take as long. Now, for patients not on ventilators or on vasopressors, to help decide if they need to go to the ICU versus just a regular hospital bed, you can use the IDSA slash ATS minor criteria. And finally, keep in mind that biomarkers do not contribute to any of these decision tools, and also that they will never be the final word. Your judgment will win out over any clinical decision aid. Next question, what biomarkers can be used to direct initial antimicrobial therapy? Here's the answer. Don't rely on procalcitonin or CRP to differentiate bacterial versus viral pneumonias. 
not really helpful, I know, but that's probably what you wanted to hear, or that's at least what you wanted to ask. Now, this is only a level C recommendation in case you're really attached to your biomarkers, though. And the third and last question, does a single dose of IV antibiotics followed by the regular oral course have benefit over just giving the regular oral course alone? And here, there isn't really an answer. There's no good data on this. So take each patient individually. In a spoonful, the pneumonia severity index score or the CURB-65 score are both pretty good disposition predictors. Don't rely on your biomarkers for differentiating viral versus bacterial pneumonias. And if one dose of IV before discharging on oral antibiotics makes you feel better and makes the patient feel better, then there's no one telling you that you shouldn't do it. Man, there's no one telling you that you should do it. And now then the fourth article, which was titled, What level of immobilization is necessary for the treatment of torus that are buccal fractures of the distal radius in children out of the BMJ? Torus fractures of the distal radius in children are one of those kind of weird fractures. You have to tell the parent that indeed their child has broken their arm, but then you're kind of wobbly about what that child really needs in terms of treatment. For most of the public, they think that a broken arm means that they're going to need a cast. But with a torus fracture, well, these are really stable fractures. Some people just put on a removable splint. Some people just a bandage. Some people a cast. And then it's actually not that unreasonable just to do nothing at all. What's the evidence actually say? And why is this whole thing so uncertain? There was actually a Cochrane review of nine RCTs done in 2018 to answer this very question of bandage or splint versus a rigid cast. And they said that bandage or splint was not inferior to casting. The uncertainty comes with the classic meta-analysis problem of garbage in and garbage out. These were unblinded studies with small sample populations and high attrition rates. Nothing to hang your hat on in terms of scientific rigor is what I'm saying. That's why we don't have a clear answer. But overall, pain scores are actually quite similar between bandages or splints compared with casting, and there aren't really any adverse events to speak of. A big trial called the FORCE trial in the UK is set to come out in late 2021, so keep your eyes out open for this if you're still really curious. In the meantime, though, most patients probably aren't going to be that keen on you doing nothing at all. Our author Clay favors a Velcro wrist splint, and I think that's a pretty reasonable option to me. Now, in a spoonful, torus fractures of the distal radius are super stable. You can do nothing at all for them, but patients might not love that. So alternatively, you can offer a bandage, a splint, or a rigid cast, and the outcomes are all pretty similar. And then that brings us to the last article, MAGGRAIN, Magnesium Compared to Conventional Therapy for the Treatment of Migraines, out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. Migraine headaches are exactly as common as you think they are, which is to say they're quite common. Pain control is going to be the main form of treatment since pain is what the problem ultimately is, essentially. No doubt you've seen many doctors that have their own migraine cocktails. I know I've seen a few. You might even have one of your own. Now, Have you considered what's in your cocktail lately? Want to try something new? How about magnesium? It's all natural, if you like that. It's pretty safe. It's cheap. And, but, uh, you know, let's see how well it works for migraines. 
This was a single-center, prospective, double-blinded, randomized control trial comparing 2 grams of IV magnesium to 10 milligrams of metoclopramide or 10 milligrams of prochlorperazine for treating migraine pain. Overall, they all worked about the same. There was no difference in the pain scores at 30, 60, or 120 minutes. All groups had non-significant differences in the lengths of stay, rescue analgesia, or adverse effects. By way of limitations, this trial was stopped early, which ended up making it underpowered. On top of that, there was a lot of potential for confounding adjunctive treatments given to patients either before or after the study medications, making this kind of a dirty study. Nevertheless, though, magnesium actually did quite well, but it's a shame that a placebo would have been a little bit unethical in this trial, I guess. Now, in a spoonful, IV magnesium to treat migraines did just as well as metoclopramide or prochlorperazine. So consider it as a possible useful alternative or adjunct to your standard migraine cocktail. And that wraps us all up. Let's do a quick review of everything that we covered just to kind of sink it in your brains. First, scouring the internet for the best syncope risk rule? Don't worry, we've got you covered. The Canadian syncope risk score appears to be the winner, at least for now. Next, if you've got a GI bleed from an unknown source, don't forget that a CTA can be one of those useful tools you can use. Next, from the third article, there's a new ASAP statement for community-acquired pneumonia in adult emergency department patients. Mostly, they say that decision aids are useful for disposition decisions if you'd like to use them, and besides that, just use your best judgment, and don't rely on biomarkers. And then we have from the fourth article, distal radius torus fractures. They're pretty stable on their own. So pick from bandaging, splinting, or casting. It shouldn't really make a difference. And then finally from the fifth article, magnesium, migraine. See how that almost works? Yeah, well, it doesn't work quite as well as two grams of magnesium IV does for migraines, which is actually fairly well. So consider it. Now then, you've earned them and we offer them. We have CME credits just for you provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. Details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. And of course, at the same place, you can find all the articles summarized. And if you'd like to, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.